as I've thought about the passage that we're going to look at this morning, there's a scene from a very famous musical that kept coming to mind. And we're going to show that here in just a second. But I want you to look at it with certain eyes. I want you to get past the spectacle of, wow, they made movies like that? Um, And I want you to also listen as closely as you can to the lyrics. It goes fast. Um, For those of you who will be familiar with it, don't resist the inclination to become so familiar that you don't listen. For those of you that are unfamiliar with it, um, resist the spectacle. Listen for what they're saying. Consider the context in which it's there. And also, most importantly, consider everything that they're celebrating. Because if you get this scene... I think you're going to get this passage. Ready to go. They couldn't pick a better time to start in life. It ain't too early and it ain't too late. Starting as a farmer with a brand new wife. Soon be living in a brand new state. Brand new state. Gonna teach you Gonna give you barley, carrots and potatoes, pasture for the cattle, spinach and tomatoes, flowers on the prairie where the June bugs zoom, plenty of air and plenty of room, plenty of room to swing a rope, plenty of heart and plenty of hope. Where the wind comes sweeping down the plain And the waving wheat can sure smell sweet When the wind comes right behind the rain Oklahoma, every night my honey lamb and I Sit alone and talk and watch a hawk Making lazy circles in the sky We know we belong to the land And the land we belong to is grand And when we say We're only saying you're doing fine Oklahoma, Oklahoma, okay Oh Love that. Let's go home. What's up with that? Notice the setting. It's a wedding. It's this large community. It's new possibilities. New family being forged in that moment. And what are they celebrating? The land. The, The land that we belong to is grand. This is a moment of great celebration. And I, honestly, my father grew up on the, the fields of Oklahoma during the Great Depression. And the pictures I have of him working a combine back in the 30s and a picture of me as a toe-headed little doofus sitting on his knee when I was a little kid and don't remember a thing, that, those pictures prove to me that my father was in his element. Such that when he moves to suburbia, I'm thinking my father is a man uprooted. There's something big about that. There's something intangible about a scene like that. And I'm arguing to you that the passage that we're going to consider today has so many features of that scene to help us understand what it's getting at. And what it's going to argue today is that when it comes to wisdom, there's a purpose for it. 
And that wisdom has something to do with land. And we want to ask ourselves the question, land, why, why should we care? And, and what is the relationship between wisdom and the land? And, and what does all that have to do with us? We want to consider, again, what is wisdom? And we're going to look at wisdom in four, from four directions. What is its essence? What does it protect us from? What is its ultimate purpose? And what is its call? What is its essence? How does it protect us? What is wisdom's purpose? And what is its call to us? We're in chapter 2. And we're going to read the entirety of that text. And want you to listen carefully and begin asking yourself in your, in your mind, why did he show that clip to unpack this passage? If you're able to stand, we'll start in chapter 2, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, Come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is the earthy word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, every week we have to remind ourselves what's the context of the Proverbs. This is as much a Mother's Day sermon as that comes because this is an imagining parents talking to their kid. It's a plea. And as far as I'm concerned, it is just as likely that this is a mom talking as a dad. Because moms, they, there are many gifts that a mom might like. A day off. <laughs> um, a nice meal. Um, a card that you might make them. But the greatest gift you can give your mom is that you might hear and heed her wisdom. And that's sort of the feel of what this moment is talking about. It is a plea that you would get wisdom that you would wise up that you can learn all you want and enjoy all you can but for goodness sake note let it be at the expense of wisdom that all then asks the question then what does it mean to be wise 
are we, are we just talking about brilliance in itself? Um, look, if you watch Stacey Chacon draw something, you'll say, that's brilliant. When you listen to Tanya play music, you will go, that's brilliant. When you see Kelly Stepp and Scott Parrish kind of hold this building together, the whole shebang, kit and caboodle, inside and out, you will say, that's brilliant. Because none of us could walk into any of those moments, whether it's in, in drawing or in music or in t- caretaking, whatever this place is, we, we would fumble around. We would look like fools. They have spent years honing their craft. And in that is a certain brilliance. There's a wisdom to it. They, they know stuff that they don't even, aren't even, maybe don't even have words to communicate. But the brilliance that's being spoken of here has a particular character to it. It's not just brilliance for a laudable gift or aptitude that you display. This is brilliance with a particular interest in mind. Mom and dad say in this passage, if you'll just get wisdom, then you're going to have an understanding about what is essential to life. And we'll get more of that later in the sermon. But what the essence of wisdom is, is what you find in verse 9. You will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path. That's the essence of wisdom as according to the Proverbs. Not just a skill, not just an aptitude, but an aptitude in those things. Righteousness, justice, and equity. What are those like? What do those mean? Righteousness is not simply being nice. It's not simply being friendly. It's not even really mostly meaning moral. According to the Proverbs, what righteousness is, is doing all you can to do right by others in the fear of the Lord. It is a very relational moment. It is a very relational effort. Bruce Waltke, theologian, commentator on this text, he says wisdom or righteousness is when someone disadvantages themselves for the advantage of the community. Such that if you want to flip that around, what does it mean to be wicked or to be foolish? It's to disadvantage the community to advantage yourself. That's the essence of righteousness, one aspect of wisdom. On the the western slope of Jerusalem, there is a monument to the Holocaust called Yad Vashem. And there, after it was uh, established back in the 60s, they, they built a road called the Avenue of the Righteous. And along that Avenue of the Righteous, they planted trees to all of those who showed righteousness unto the Jews. And one of those people is somebody whose name you've heard before if you ever saw that Steven Spielberg film Schindler's List. Because in 1962, Oscar Schindler went to Yad Vashem and there planted a tree at their invitation with their thanksgiving in the ways, the myriad ways, the innumerable ways he disadvantaged himself for the advantage of the community. That's righteousness. Righteousness in in writ large there. But you know what? Guess what righteousness is? Motherhood disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the community, you've just defined motherhood. That's what mothers do. That's what mothers are called to. That's righteousness. Justice in the same way. There's an overlap, but there's still a distinction. Righteousness is the establishment of that right way, of doing right by another. Justice is restoring wherever that righteousness has been disrupted. So the whole book of Judges, before there were kings, Israel appointed judges to do what? To restore righteousness to the community. Where it was set out of joint, they were there to help understand what that was about. Guess what? That's what mothers do too. 
Sometimes their kids fight. And sometimes you got to restore some order and some harmony and some love and respect for one another. Moms come with justice to restore righteousness to a household. It's wisdom. And the way they do that is applying equity. Righteousness is that condition that we aspire to. Justice is when we come and restore that condition to what it's meant to be. Equity, which, which really borrows its meaning from a geometric idea of a straight line. Or it also uh, borrows its idea from a wine that goes down smoothly. Something, something choice and, and, and wonderful about that. Equity is to, is to apply justice with a right standing, a right understanding of who God is. Righteousness, justice, equity, that's the good path. That's the essence of wisdom. And that's more than just behaviors. It's not just practices that you follow. It is something that goes deeper, so deep that the the passage speaks of that depth when it says, for wisdom, in verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. It's more than behavior. It's something that's that's seeped down into the very depths of your being. The, The heart is a very biblical word for the idea, the seat of your understanding, the seat the, the, the very origin of the source of what all you do, what all you love, and how all you act. We, we kind of use the mind today to refer to that idea. And from a biblical worldview, the heart is that thing. Righteousness, justice, and equity are not behaviors. They're things that seep down into the heart. Because, look, there are plenty of moments in which you are more inclined to do what's popular or to do what just keeps people from being mad at you. That's your motive. But when it's coming to righteousness and justice and equity, sometimes you've got to act in a way that is unpopular, that will actually earn for you a reputation that you will have to recover from, maybe. Uh, we were in staff meeting uh, this week. Um, Amanda McClam's walking us through some of the missional communities material, and we were just talking about what does it mean to be in community and how hard it is to be in relationships sometimes. And, and Greg Lee brought up this wonderful example of uh, if you're a parent in a grocery store and your kid is wanting to demand something and you deny them what they're demanding and they freak out and they throw a tantrum and they throw out all these words like, you must hate me. And that never happens, right? It's just totally hypothetical. In moments like that, a mother's or father's instinct is to go, okay, i got to sort of tamp down the crying here. I'll just do whatever they want. You, you feel like you're in a hostage negotiation situation. <laughs> and you can cater to that. But the mom who is wise in that moment knows, if I cater to that, I'm actually betraying something. I'm actually not doing what's best for them. And the only way she can act with conviction and confidence and and block out the screaming is because she believes that's the righteous thing. Because she's persuaded of that. Because it's seeped down into her heart. It's not merely a behavior. It's something she's come to rejoice in such that she can apply it even when it's unpopular. That is the essence of wisdom. That's what mom and dad here in this passage are seeking to apply unto their child. Which invites a question. Where, where, where in your relational world right now is in need of this kind of wisdom? Only you can answer that. But how do your relationships need this kind of wisdom today? 
He's calling us to the essence of wisdom. She's calling us to the essence of wisdom because there's benefit to it. But the benefit also attests, is attested by what this kind of wisdom protects us from. And according to this passage, what it protects us from are two pervasive, subtle dangers. The first one starts in verse 11. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. What's this first danger? It's the danger of being misled. Of being misled by those whose words have every appearance of authority. Have every appearance of confidence. And you're persuaded by that. And let's just be honest with ourselves. Life is quite often one big struggle not to be taken in by people who speak persuasively. Even pastors. Not to be taken in by those who have every evidence or every, every, every approximation of really knowing what they're talking about. Um, it's a, a perennial discussion in this country and elsewhere that it's, uh, we, we say to ourselves, uh, boy, democracy is broken. And, and while we debate that quite often, we maybe remember something that Winston Churchill said a long time ago. He said, democracy is the worst of all political systems, except for all the rest. Right? And then if I remember correctly from college years, sophomore philosophy about what Plato said about democracy when it is really sort of a newborn idea, he said, you know, democracy is great maybe at some level, but you know what you're asking for when you enter into a democratic world. You're asking um, for people falling prey to image. That you can become persuaded by um, that which is very charismatic, uh, that which uh, sort of pushes your buttons, that which sort of scratches your itch, and you think that's the truth. And yet, unless you have grasped the essence of wisdom, of what, what is righteous and just and equitable, you will be influenced by every persuasive voice. And wisdom is out to protect you from that. Because you can even be taken in by persuasive voices that actually rejoice in unrighteousness, that rejoice in what is unjust. Why are there cults that oppress? Why are there gangs that terrorize? Because there is power in persuasive words. And that power, that power is what wisdom is out to protect us from if we will only grasp what righteousness and justice and equity is. It delivers us from the danger of being misled. But the other danger is what's summarized there starting in verse 16. You will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to be departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. The first danger is being misled by words that sounded persuasive. The second danger is of being seduced by words whose attractiveness belie their destructiveness. Words whose seductive power, whose attractiveness belie their destructiveness. And that's one of the other reasons why I use that Oklahoma clip. 
What's happening? A wedding. What happens at a wedding? A promise. A new life. A promise of faithfulness. And from that faithfulness, an experience of shared trust, of mutual commitment that, in, that relies upon trust. In a very, very different film that came out a few years ago, Moulin Rouge, there's a character in there who is, get this, a narcoleptic Argentinian. Yes. And in one of the moments where he's about to sing Sting's Roxanne, he prefaces it by saying this. Where there is no trust, there can be no love. Thank you. Where there is no trust, there can be no love. And you think, duh, but sometimes we don't consider the relationship between trust and love. Um, love requires trust. If you can't trust them, you don't, know how to in, you don't know how to entrust yourself to them. You don't know how to love them. And that sort of trust, then what? Requires what? A commitment. A humiliation, a humbling of yourself before some other standard that you might then be in covenant with the other person. That scene in Oklahoma is not just a wedding. It's a demonstration of a covenant of trust and how life flows from that example and commitment of trust. The danger, therefore, that this is delivering you from here in the passage, it's not about sex. Not primarily. Wait till we get to chapter 5. Oh my, this dude ain't no prude. All the teenagers are suddenly awake. Did he say chapter 5? Um, <laughs> oh my God. Um, it's not about the sex. It's about the overvaluation of sex, which leads to the undervaluation of the relationship. If you and I do not have a grasp of wisdom's essence, of righteousness and justice and equity, the sex will always win. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. Wisdom is out to protect you from overvaluing some things at the expense of undervaluing others. That's what wisdom's essence is out to protect us from. Where in your world are you in need of wisdom's protection today? Only you can answer. God knows. I think you might also. That's one of its benefits. Its mightiest benefit. Not its mightiest benefit. Its great benefit. Because there's one other benefit that we have to continue. And that's where we talk about my third point. We've talked about the, the essence of what wisdom is, and now we've just discussed two things that wisdom protects us from, but we really want to get to the heart of what is wisdom's ultimate purpose? It's, it's not wisdom for wisdom's sake. It's for something else. And that clip is actually helps us to see what the ultimate purpose of seeking wisdom is, which is summarized here at the very end of the passage, starting in verse 20. So you will walk in the way of the good, and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land. And those with integrity will remain in the land. But the wicked will be cut off from the land. And the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Who are the upright? They're the ones that get wisdom. And what will be the benefit to those who are upright who have that wisdom? They'll inherit the land. They'll remain in the land. And we're all asking ourselves right now, what's the deal with the emphasis on the land? Let the Oklahomans remind you, what are they singing to? We know we belong to the land. 
And the land we belong to is grand. They're not just sort of speaking rhapsodically about how the wind comes sweeping down the plain and the wave and wheat is oh so sweet. What is that all about? That's more than just dirt. It's more than just territory. It's about a place of refuge. It is a place of opportunity for community to be forged and found and cultivated. It is a place where provision, a base of operations that can be established. Kids, why do we instinctually want to make forts? Why do we love the idea of tree houses? Because we have this little space that's ours. We find something really profound about that. Like, this is our spot. And we can rule it however we want. And we can dream. And we can weep. And we can laugh. And we can read stuff. It's our place. It's our gift. What the Oklahomans and the Israelites are all celebrating here is the gift of provision. The gift of of meaning, the gift of posterity. And when you talk about land in the Old Testament, if you're, if you're in the Torah, if you're in you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you're in Joshua and Judges, when you hear the word land, you're thinking about that land that God set aside for Israel. But when you get here into the wisdom literature, into, into Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, when you're talking about land there, it's just earth. It's just here. But whether you're talking about the promised land or any land, it's the same thing. It's God's promise. It's God's gift. It's the promise of God's presence. It's not just the land. It's the way he sees us. It's his promise to us that he will be for us and with us. That's what the land is about. That's why Israelites are celebrating the land. That's why the Oklahomans, I would dare say, are celebrating the land because it's a promise to them. A promise of life. A promise of hope. So how does wisdom relate to this idea of land and promise and life and future? The purpose of wisdom is for us to take root in and find life in God's land. And right around now, I suspect many of you are going, fascinating. But why do I care? What's the relevance of something like this? Fast forward several thousand years to Jesus' day. Jesus is in Israel. Israel is in its land. Its borders have been crimped. And that land it inhabits is actually occupied territory. They might think it's their land. The Romans would argue otherwise. In the same way that the Native Americans might argue otherwise to the Oklahomans. But I'll digress. Israel at that time is asking themselves, apparently we've been fools because we lost the land and this land is not our land. This this land is not my land. What's going on? And then Jesus enters on the scene and like we said on Good Friday or rather Palm Sunday, they're all thinking, here's the dude coming to conquer. He's going to reclaim the land for us. Maybe we will all soon be singing this land is your land, this land is my land again. And Jesus says, And acts in a way that says, I will die, I will rise, and I will give those who trust in me my spirit. And those who have his spirit will suddenly become part of, if you will, his territory. That where he dwells, in whom he dwells, is now 
part of his land. Because this is the kingdom of God that he came to preach. This is by his resurrection a new day where he fulfills his promise that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And anyone who looks to him as the Lord of life has suddenly become his land, his territory. Let me unpack that in one other way. Uh, Today is Mother's Day, I know that. Um, It just so happens that today is also, according to the Christian calendar, the day of ascension. Uh, This is the day we remember when Jesus ascended to heaven, which was not primarily to show us that he could levitate. It's not about that, really. Although um, there is a school in uh, in England uh, that to commemorate Ascension Day uh, launched model rockets. And I'm, I'm, I'm considering that we might enact that tradition in some future day. But there at the school in which they um, launch model rockets to remember that day, there's a, a priest and, and poet by the name of Malcolm Geit who wrote something for this week, who wrote a sonnet for Ascension Day. And I'm going to play it for you right now in his voice. Ready? Go. Here is a sonnet I've written for Ascension Day. Ascension. We saw his light break through the cloud of glory whilst we were rooted still in time and place as earth became a part of heaven's story and heaven opened to his human face. We saw him go and yet we were not parted. He took us with him to the heart of things. The heart that broke for all the broken-hearted is whole and heaven-centred now, and sings, sings in the strength that rises out of weakness, sings through the clouds that veil him from our sight, whilst we ourselves become his clouds of witness and sing the waning darkness into light, his light in us and ours in him concealed, which all creation waits to see revealed. That's why we celebrate Ascension Day. Because it is this day we remember that Jesus began to reign. And all of those in whom his spirit dwells, he has reign over them. They are his land. They are his citizenry. They are his people. And he says unto us in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth. And Paul, in a number of his letters, will speak of those affections of the heart that will inherit the kingdom of God. And it's right around this time where some of you might start to feel a little uneasy. Because what I read there at the end of Proverbs 2 made it sound like that wisdom, it being the purpose of inheriting the land, are we to say to ourselves then that the only way we can have access to God's promise God's future, God's destiny, is if we show him that we are wise enough to be part of that land. To be part of that promise. Is that what he's saying? Is that what Jesus is saying? The short answer is no. And the reason I say that is this. This land that Jesus bought by his blood, that land, that title is in his name. That title was bought At the cost of his own blood. And the only reason you and I are within that land, that promise, that life, that destiny, is because it was given to us as a gift. 
You can't demonstrate enough wisdom to be invited into that land. The only way you can be invited into his land and his promise and his future is if he does that for you. So the question is then, has Jesus then dispensed with the need for wisdom if he's given us his promise at his cost? Is wisdom now sort of a a luxury item that you and I no longer need to aspire to? Short answer to that one is also no. And the reason that is, I'll hasten one last time to the Oklahomans. Back in my daddy's day in Oklahoma, during the Dust Bowl, they had the land, but because of forces outside of their control, but also because of their folly, they mistreated the land. And if you've ever seen Ken Burns' documentary on the Dust Bowl, you'll get it. When people ask too much from the land, when people try to exploit the land, when people try to use it in ways that it was never intended to be used, guess what? They sacrifice the life that could come from the land. Their folly costs them. They're in the land, but they sacrifice all the life that could be true of the land. You and I are called to grasp the essence of wisdom, not so that we can lay claim to this promise this, this space in which we might dwell in God's favor, not to lay claim to it, but to find the fullness of life within it. That's what wisdom is for. That's why we need wisdom. You buy a house. Somebody buys a house for you, puts it in their name, says, or rather puts it in your name, but it's at their cost and they give it to you. Is it wise or foolish to mistreat the house? It's foolish. And you can't benefit from everything that comes with that house that you're trying to inhabit and find life in it. That's why we need wisdom to know how to inhabit that home we've been given at someone else's cost. That's why we need wisdom. And that, my friends, is the perfect setting in which to cultivate wisdom. To know that this house, this land, this promise, this future is yours entirely by his work. That is the perfect setting in which to learn and cultivate wisdom. Why? Here's the last time I'll refer to the movie. What does Curly do with Laurie in that scene? He makes a vow. He makes a vow of love. He makes a promise of trust. But every time that happens, whether it's in Oklahoma or North Carolina, when somebody makes a promise to one another in covenantal love, you are also saying to them, I'm giving you the freedom to fail. I'm giving you the freedom to fail at love so that you might really learn what it is to love. Because if you will not make that kind of promise to someone else in a covenantal love, then every time you fail them, you are fearful that they will depart from you and cease to love you. When you make vows, you are saying, honey, I know you're going to disappoint me. I know you're going to fail me, but I will love you anyway. Curly and Lori are saying that to one another. And guess what? God is saying that to each of us through his son, Jesus. You will fail, but my love is everlasting. And that, my friends, is the perfect context in which you and I might learn to be wise through failure. And that then invites us to the call of wisdom. 
I think it's pretty clear that what the text is asking us is to seek it, to go after it. So how shall we? My recommendation to you is to stick around for the rest of the series. Because next week, we turn a page, we turn a corner. We've been making a case for why we should go for wisdom and how wisdom is a great benefit to us all. But now we're going to get into the wisdom for what? We're going to talk about words, how we use our mouths. We're going to talk about wealth. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about friendship. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about how do we understand God's providence in a world that feels like it is totally random. All of those themes, we're going to surface from the Proverbs. We're going to try to find and, and, and glean the wisdom from it. So how do you really treat it as wisdom? You listen to what the mom says to her son in verses 1 through 4. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, how do you go after wisdom? You have to give your attention to it in an unfragmented way. Pascal said the problem with Western civilization is that men cannot sit in their room being still and quiet. We always have to be stimulated. What wisdom hearkens from us all, beckons from us all, is an attentiveness to it, where we close out everything that we might just sort of sit with it and consider it. That's what it requires. It also requires what it says in verses 3 and 4. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. In other words, you got to ask what you hear, questions of it. You got to inspect it. You got to interrogate it. You got to pray. Because anytime you're asking questions of what you hear, you're actually engaging with it. Just to hear it passively and just, you know, in one and ear, out the other, that's not really engaging. When you're asking questions of what you're hearing, that's engagement. That's how you get it. That's what it means to seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. But I might say as a last word then, yes. Be attentive to what you hear. Yes, ask questions and pray about what you're hearing. But thirdly, and most importantly, rest in your failures. Rest in your failures to walk with wisdom because this land is your land because of what he did. This promise is your promise because of what he did. This future is your future because of what he did. And what that invites us all to is a search for wisdom with the understanding that you can rest in your failures of folly so that you and I might learn a little more what it means to be wise. Mom would love it if we listened to her wisdom. How much more so the Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.